Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Now, I wonder what scared them off. You know what scared them? The spectacle of law and order here, rising up out of the gravy and the mashed potatoes. All right, all right, all right, you made your point. It was the gun that scared him off. Poppy's gun, your gun, Tom. What right you have to interfere? It was me, he tripped. My stake. And you would have killed him for it. Or he would have killed you over one measly stake. That's why I picked it up. Well, thanks for saving my life, Pilgrim. That isn't why I did it. Nobody fights my battles. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Bart. So we're back talking to ghosts again. I like ghosts. Yeah. I'm terrified of ghosts, but I like them. No, we've got a friendly ghost in our house, apparently. I've never met it, but my wife always talks about our friendly ghost. (laughs) But the friendly ghost that we're talking about today is uh, Mr. Andrew Saris, who was a really important critic in the 60s. He really changed the way that uh, people thought about movies. We've done a couple of key critics already on this podcast, Pauline Kael and Stanley Kaufman. And uh, Andrew Saris is usually brought up uh, in, at least uh, in retrospect. Now, even at the time, he's, he was often talked about in relation to Pauline Kael because they butted heads an awful lot. Andrew Saris, of course, was famous for popularizing the auteur theory in America, the politique des auteurs that he brought over from, from France, from the Cahiers to cinema critics, and uh, to put it simply, it's the idea that the director of a film is the most important person on the set, and that movies can be viewed as works of a a single author, and that author is the director. And uh, then Pauline Kael had the opposing view that, no, it's a collaborative, every film is a unique, an individual experience, a collaborative effort. You can't attribute a single author to to any film. So they, they're followers of both camps in the 60s amongst uh, readers of their works, the the Sarasites, the, no, what are they called? The, the, <laughs> the, the, the Sarists, I think, and the, and the Paulettes, uh, you know, people who would uh, champion one or the other. We did a Pauline Kael episode, and uh, so now we have to do Saris. How widely have you read Andrew Saris? I haven't actually read any of Andrew Saris's books. You know, I haven't like sat down and read a whole bunch of his stuff in one sitting, but I've always thought of him as kind of the film critic. I think that his input, I mean, he really shaped what is considered some of the greatest American films out there you know as they were happening i think that he typically has at least i mean he always has something interesting to say whether or not i agree with him i i don't like the you know the he's not nearly like pauline kale as far as you know getting into bizarre snits about certain people and then dragging them for the rest of their life (laughs) except for maybe kubrick who i really don't understand why he hates kubrick so much but um didn't he have a change of heart about kubrick maybe but maybe not I, I kind of, that doesn't like leave, leave my boy alone, you know, like, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean like, you know, he was championing uh, Hitchcock and, you know, all of these uh, auteurs and the films that he considered great are still films that are considered great today. And I think so, you know, in that sense, it's this, 
I don't know. He sort of helped to, to find that kind of film canon. In in my mind, I feel like that Saris was the the auteur of that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody would be well. You know, some people would be talking about John Ford and Howard Hawks and you know Orson Welles and all the the great directors of the Hollywood studio era, but he made them the the focus for for a lot of people and and their their love of cinema. Uh, he he really you know got them to focus on these larger than life figures who are behind these great films. I uh, in terms of agreeing with what Saris has to say about the movies that he champions, I. I don't often. I uh, I mean, the movie we're going to talk about today, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, I love. And Andrew Saris considers it one of the greatest movies ever made. But when you get into the, you know, the text of what he's saying about these films that he loves, I, I often don't agree with what he's saying. And, you know, for that matter, I often don't agree with what Pauline Kael says about the movie she's reviewing either. But, you know, at least... Kale has a flashy style, like is, you know, just so much fun to read, even when you don't agree with what she's saying. And Saris, I don't think, has a similar engaging style. Like he always just brings it back to the great directors. Like he'll he'll compare this work to the work of some other director from the past. I think of movies in terms of the directors, and I think most cinephiles do. And we we definitely have Andrew Saris to thank for that, but I'm not sure my appreciation of him goes much further than that, to be honest. Stanley Kaufman, I you know, we brought up earlier because he actually is a critic from the sixties that I read his stuff and I, you know, connect to it. I I, I feel what he's saying. But uh so I, I don't I don't belong in, in either camp really. I'm not a Cerise or a Paulette, but uh but we gotta talk about Andrew Saris. Yeah, I'm with you. He's not like, well, you mentioned, but, you know, before we did this, you mentioned to to go back and read Richard Brody's sort of obituary on Saris after he died, which is really just him talking a little bit about auteur theory and, and how Saris worked more than anything. And he made a really good point in this essay, which is on the, you know, it's on the New Yorker. You can just Google it. It's called Andrew Saris and the A-Word. And he made a really good point about how a lot of the drama around auteur theory has to do with partially Saris's what he calls linguistic peccadillo, because he refers to it as auteur theory. And this is what this is Brody saying, as if it was something that could be proved. And I think that that is a little bit both what I like about Saris and what I dislike about Saris is that in general, he tends to to strive for this neutrality. And I think there he's really a teacher at heart in that sense. Like, you know, he's always trying to present something as if he isn't indifferent to it. And and this is objectively the, the way that it is and how he sees it is just like clearly the objective way. And I like how that reads, but I don't buy. And I think that's what pissed off Pauline Kale so much is that I don't buy that it actually is objective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there there is just this this aspect to him that I think in a weird way is is very similar to, to Pauline Kell, even though she's more straightforward about like, you know, this is how I feel. And he's more about this is how I see it. And there's like just this slight linguistic change there that is kind of there's the they're the same things, but they're presenting in a different way. And and so like, I don't know, like I, I yeah, like I, I like to read what he writes. I don't 
his, I would say that his top films, a very few of them I, I agree with for what he thought were the greatest films ever made. But that doesn't mean I don't appreciate him. And, I, and usually I find out something that, you know, he got from the film that I thought like, oh, well, that's way more interesting than the movie that I watched. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that is a big frustration. And one of the things that Pauline Kael held against him is that he would hold up really mediocre films as sort of exemplary work of a particular director. And, uh, you know, objectively, this this movie is not a good movie. And the fact that you can see the director's personality in it does not make it a great film. And, uh, you know, and to be fair, Andrew Saris does, you know, in his great work, the, uh, you know, the, the one that everybody refers to, the American cinema that he wrote in 1968, where he, you know, just lists all the working directors in Hollywood, you know, hundred couple hundred i don't know quite a few and then puts them all in categories and the the top are the the pantheon directors and uh next down is the far side of paradise and he sort of ranks directors by how important they are and uh you know a lot of people still go by his rankings he definitely makes valid points about why people are where but he also will take john ford for example since we're discussing him now um He'll go through, in, in the American cinema book, he'll go through all of Ford's works, and he tends to focus on the lesser works and saying, he'll say how John Ford failed making, you know, The Informer, which is a, a movie of, of Ford's that everybody holds up as one of his best, or, you know, what what Ford's failings are. And so he's not he's not saying that everything that a, a particular director has made is a masterpiece. He's saying that everything a particular director made who has any talent is inherently interesting because it says something about that director. And I think that's where some of the confusion lies, where some of the the anger and the and the uh, you know people misinterpreting what Saris is saying sort of is it, it it happens in that sort of gray area. There, he's like he's not saying that this director is flawless. Everything is, is he's that he's got a hundred percent success rate, but he does end up holding up pretty mediocre movies as inherently interesting, which it can be. I mean, I, some of my favorite directors, I, I go back to their lesser movies and see if I can get something out of them. So his influence is still felt. And I, you know, he's definitely important to me in terms of how I look at movies, but I guess that's, well, just for a little biographical information about uh, Andrew Saris. I don't even want to get into his life too much. He, he's mainly known for his work in the 60s writing for The Village Voice. He was the head critic there, and so most of his writing was was for that paper. Uh, what we're talking about tonight, though, is an essay that he wrote for Film Culture in 1962 about the man who shot Liberty Valance. <laughs> Ford's 1962 film. It's a great essay, and uh, it's sort of held up as one of Cirrus's you know, more important early pieces. This was several years before he wrote 
the American cinema and had really sort of codified his different strata of directors. But uh, reading this essay, he, he definitely is clearly all in on uh, the auteur theory already. And it, uh, it's sort of, he, I think the same year before this essay, did, did you get a date on his essay on uh, the auteur theory? That came out before this essay, I think, didn't it? I think September 62. Okay, so maybe it was... Well, the same year, I think. Yeah, I mean, they came out around the same time, but uh, he's... Clearly thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. The essay is called Cactus Rosebud or The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Film culture number 25, summer of 1962. But before we get into the essay itself, uh, let me talk about the movie for anybody who hasn't seen it. I've seen this movie many, many times. One reason is because I taught it. What? Yeah. Well, I, when I was teaching uh, the uh, American film class that I taught, this was one of the films. When was that? A decade ago, something like that. More than a decade ago at this point. I don't know. Um, mm. So it had been a while since I'd seen it, but there was a time when I was watching it in whole and in sections quite a bit. Why did you choose this film? Because of Saris? No, because it's it tells the story of America better than any single film that anyone has ever made. All right, we'll save we'll save that. <laughs> so I can't use that now. Well, <laughs> you were, we were going to tell the plot. Oh, okay. <laughs> so an old Jimmy Stewart and uh, his wife, played by Vera Miles roll into town he's a uh, a congressman and uh, this is rance rant he's ransom stoddard um and this is the beginning of the 20th century it turns out that the the congressman and his wife have come to shinbone uh state is never specified but we're to assume it's somewhere in the southwest and the the folks in town particularly the journalists are excited that uh, the congressman has has shown up they didn't know he was coming and so they want to get the scoop why are you why are you here congressman and uh turns out he's here for a funeral of somebody that uh, nobody in town was familiar with except for some of the old timers like uh, Andy Devine who plays uh the ex marshal Link Appleyard and uh once they find out, uh, you know, that he's here for this this person that, he, you know, apparently is a local, but they don't know anything about, Rance is uh, forced with with his wife, with Hallie, his wife's encouragement to tell the story of uh, Tom Donovan, the man in the coffin that they've uh, come to the funeral for. And uh, so the, it uh, flashes back to before the train had come to Shinbone and... Uh, Rance is riding through, you know, outside of town in a stagecoach, and he's held up by uh, these bandits. Uh, stand and deliver. Get out of Lee Marvin's mouth. You know, even though he's got a bandana over his face, it's it's clearly Lee Marvin. And so these bandits rob the stagecoach, and they try and take uh, the brooch from this older woman who says, my husband, my dead husband gave it to me. And Jimmy Stewart, as Rance, uh, stands up for her and and gets the crap beat out of him as a result and when uh, the bandits are going through all the uh I'm, I'm just going through this <laughs> scene by scene i can picture the entire movie in my head so i don't know how how to summarize it but anyway he doesn't have any a gun he just has a bag full of books he's an attorney and that pisses off 
Liberty Valens more than anything. And so that's that's really the reason that he beats the hell out of Rance is is because there's no law in these parts. The gun is the law. You know, basically, John Wayne, this Tom Donovan, who's a cattleman, uh, you know, finds Jimmy Stewart, Rance, and, and brings him back to Shinbone and gets him some medical help uh, at this restaurant that's in the center of town. It's sort of this, the, the social center of this town. And uh, Hallie is, uh, you know, tends to his wounds. And when uh, Rance finds out that Liberty Valance is the name of the guy who robbed the stagecoach and, and beat him up, he vows to not to kill him as uh, is the rule of the land uh, at this time, but instead bring him to justice to arrest him and take him to court and uh, put him in jail. Everybody thinks that this is a ridiculous idea, but uh, this is how the setup for this movie where John Ford tells the story of the civilizing of the West, bringing law to the West. And he tells it through these sort of, archetypal characters you know Hallie the waitress in the restaurant represents America in a way and she's sort of torn between these two men she's not actually engaged to Tom Donovan but uh, it's sort of assumed that they're going to get married Tom is building an, an addition to his house so that he can ask Hallie to marry him and have her move in but uh, it hasn't happened yet because he's he's a wandering soul you know as a cattleman he's not at home that much, so he doesn't think it's it's that appropriate. But uh, Hallie is also really attracted to what Rance Stoddard has to offer. She can't read, and he says, "Well, I'll teach you to read." And she, you know, sees what law and order and civilization could bring to this town, and you know, is excited by the the dream of that. And so the movie tells America's story through her character, like caught between these two sort of impulses. This sort of this is the way things are, this, you know, individualism, you know, sticking a claim on the land and sort of making making your way on your own as an individual. And then on the other side, the sort of idea that, yes, but law and order and statehood can can bring so many things to this town. We won't have to fear people like Liberty Valance and we'll have education and there'll be equality, though people will, you know, have to treat each other with, uh, with more fairness and just, uh, yeah. That's the setup for the movie. I don't know how the movie is called The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And uh, what's sort of interesting about that title is there is uh, some ambiguity as to who that's actually referring to. It could be uh, either Tom or Rance. Do we want to get into it? I guess everybody, you probably knew the story of The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance before going into this, right? You didn't. I didn't. Oh. But I, it was very, very obvious. <laughs> Is that your problem with this movie? It's too obvious. Clearly, you don't like this movie as much as I do. So, I mean, it's it's honestly, it's embarrassing because I have been putting this movie off for years for no reason other than the fact that it's beloved. And sometimes you just, I don't know, it took me like 20 somewhat years to finally see The Godfather. And when I did, I sat down. I was like, this is brilliant. This was an amazing movie. I don't know why I waited this long. <laughs> So I don't know. I kind of like sometimes keeping these like gems in, in my back pocket for one day when I want to treat myself. And so I hadn't seen this movie, despite the fact that I really like Westerns and pretty much every single person I know, uh, if you ask them what their favorite Western is, this is either number one or it is in the top three. So I figured I can't lose. And then, um, yeah, I watched it 
for this? And I said, huh? (laughs) (laughs) But I don't dislike it. But I want to talk first about what Saris thinks. I didn't read Saris's review first. I watched the movie first. Uh, I wrote down everything that I thought. And then I, I went back and started doing a whole lot of reading because uh, I just, I, I was complete, I found myself completely baffled by why this would be held up as the greatest Western, like completely, like absolutely just a giant question mark. It wasn't even like anger or like, you know, anything. I was just like, huh? And then like knowing that this got mixed reviews at the time when it came out doesn't surprise me whatsoever. And my, I have a theory that this film is... If you're coming to it without knowing anything about Westerns, you're going to love it. If you're coming to it, having seen a lot of Westerns from the 50s especially, it's really nothing special. If you're coming to it as somebody who loves John Ford and John Wayne and knows everything about them, this is like a spectacular movie. That's my theory. No, that's fair. But I also think that it's definitely playing with a lot of the ideas that the rougher Westerns of the fifties were were dealing with. I mean, first of all, you've got Jimmy Stewart here who is really playing. I mean, he's more playing a Jimmy Stewart type from before he was playing Cowboys and Anthony Mann's Westerns of the fifties. You know, he's back to playing Mr. Smith again, like in, in Anthony Mann's Westerns, he's always got this vendetta against somebody. He wants revenge. He's, he's angry and he's, morally compromised and so like coming off of that series of westerns which didn't happen very long before this film was made uh and to have him not carry a gun and you know he he has a vendetta early on in this film but instead of wanting to go out and shoot liberty valance which is what he would want to do in all those other movies he wants to throw law books at him and so i think it's playing off of that you know, and then there's John Wayne sort of playing the traditional John Wayne gunslinger cattleman role. But this movie is sort of taking what we know about these figures from previous movies and using them as archetypes. And, and at the same time, you know, hammering those nails in the coffin of John Wayne's uh, character. This is the last Western that John Wayne made for John Ford. Uh, they made a couple of movies together after this, but they're he's not a gunslinger in either of them. But yeah, I mean, I think that it's required to have certain expectations about the Western genre before coming into this. So I think negative responses to it may have been that, uh, you know, just is not a traditional Western. It is not giving people what they expect from this genre and also shooting holes in the mythology of it. Well, you know, and creating a, a new mythology in a way like the mythology of bringing civilization to the West. So, I mean, so your take on this is actually very, very much in line with Saris's take, which I just want to bring in, obviously, because this is meant to be about Saris's <laughs> pick, though it's going to end up being about Bart and Jenna. You know, Saris's uh, argument for this film is exactly what you're saying, is that this is building on archetypes that uh, he says... Quote, it is hardly surprising that the plot essence of the flashback, which is the beginning of the film, is less important than the uh, evocations of its character. Whatever one thinks of the auteur theory, the individual films of John Ford are inextricably linked 
in an awesome network of meanings and associations when we realize that the man in the coffin is John Wayne, the John Wayne of Stagecoach, The Long Voyage Home, They Were Expendable, Fort Apache, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, Rio Grande, Three Godfathers, The Quiet Man, The Searchers, and The Wings of the Eagles. The one film at a time reviewer's contention, which is Kale, who I'm going to, I'll read her review in a second. The one film at a time reviewer's contention that Wayne is a bit old for the action plot becomes absurdly superficial. Uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance can never be fully appreciated, except as a memory film, the last of its kind, perhaps from one of the screen's old masters. So I think he's saying exactly what you're saying is that what you're, you're watching in this movie isn't John Wayne being Tom Donovan. It's John Wayne being John Wayne and that it's about James Stewart being James Stewart. He goes on to say that, quote, Ford's brushstrokes of, of characterization seem broader than ever. And basically that this entire thing is is this sort of abstract. It, it's the it's the entirety of John Ford and John Wayne's collaborations on screen with John Ford as an older filmmaker at this point, much older, considering he started, you know, in silent films, looking back at his entire career of of building up the American myth and tossing it in a coffin, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely uh, one of his points, for sure. And I think what you said, that somebody coming to this movie as a John Ford fan, which I really don't have a sense of in 1962, if, you know, John Ford was definitely a name that people recognize, particularly fans of Westerns, they would say, oh, John Ford Western, I'm going to get a certain kind of film, maybe. But I, there, I can't imagine there was a cult of John Ford the way there is now, the way that, you know, and I think because of Saris, there is a cult of John Ford now. So I'm not sure that in 1962, people had the set of expectations from what they're going to get from a John Ford film and the work that Saris is doing in this article is saying, well, here's, if you were really paying attention, you know, he lists every single one of, or not every one of the, the Ford John Wayne collaborations, but a lot of the big ones and saying that, you know, think, think back people on these films. You, you saw them. If you're watching this movie, you've probably seen these other films and think about how they're all connected. Think about what's essential to all of those and how, this movie is building off of those films and uh, putting a nail in them, you know, sort of drawing it all into this major conclusive film. And yeah, I, I definitely think that's true that looking at this movie as the culmination of John Ford's career and Sarah's didn't know that when he was writing this article, I mean, he knew Ford was old and he didn't have too many more films in him in a couple of spots in this article. It says, this may be the last time that Ford does this. This may be the last time he does that. And it turns out that he's basically right on all of those points, that this is, for all intents and purposes, Ford's, it's his last major work anyway. I mean, he did Donovan's Reef and uh, Seven Women after this, but they're not amongst his great films. And this really does serve as a capper for this man's career, for Saris's hero's career. And uh, that's... Not the only way to look at this movie, but an important way. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the, I, I'm with you. I don't think that there, I think that Saris definitely created the John Ford cult as we know it, uh, as you called it. Um, but the, I think the the one thing that people should know, or at least must have known to, on some level, was that John Ford did create John Wayne with Stagecoach. 
that was like, you know, his, his big, you know, hit that, that gave John Wayne an entire career. And then the two of them ended up being stuck together for the rest of their working lives. <laughs> what started out as a friendship. I mean, that to me, that's like a whole other topic that I actually think really, you know, if, if you're going to follow Saris's thread in this, it is further strengthened by looking at the relationship between John Ford and John Wayne and seeing how this, this started from this working friendship that then really festered, especially once World War II happened and John Wayne decided that he was, you know, he was had a family and a, and a career and he didn't want to give it up to volunteer for the army and Ford never forgave him. Their relationship, you know, their politics started to, to really diverge with Ford being this sort of essential um, Roosevelt Democrat was one way I saw it put and uh, and John Wayne being, you know, Mr. Conservative, rah, rah, right, right wing. And yeah, and then so like the two of them, you know, sort of, I find it amusing, but it's also almost sort of sad, but and yet it's it was still fruitful. So it I don't know how to describe it. But the fact it was that the two of them were, were so linked that they couldn't actually have a career, especially John Ford by the end of his working career in, in the 50s and, and 60s, he couldn't get movies made without John Wayne. So part of why he even has John Wayne in this film is because it was the only way to have it made when John Wayne's career finally sort of overtook John Ford's. And John Wayne was, if nothing else, always loyal. And even though he would be essentially berated on set like day in and day out by John Ford, who just could not stand the sight of him anymore. Uh, he would always sort of take these films and, and do John Ford a, a favor just so that he could get funding to make his movies. He always believed in his films. So, you know, to to sort of look at The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance through that lens, too, I think it props up Saris even even further. Like, I think that Saris, like, I, I don't want to ever say that somebody is is right. Like, this this is the the right way to view this movie. But I think it's the best way to view this movie is through this lens that Saris is, is presenting. Uh, and he goes into this even further. You know, it's not just that he's saying that, you know, it's the, the history of this collaboration between these two is what makes this entire film. He also, of course, goes into detail about the film itself and he defends, uh, you know, the, the filmmaking choices and the, and the you know, the, the plot and the characters and all of that. There's a lot of stuff in the past that makes this film so important in the present. Like that to me is the, is the most fascinating part. And I, it ties into the, you know, what the film is itself, which is, as he says, it's, it's about memory. It's about, you know, looking, looking back on the West. And as you said, it's about, you know, uh, America. I just want to read the little clip because I mentioned it before, but that Pauline Kael gave this movie a mixed review. And, and what she said was, quote, the reputation of this John Ford Western is undeservedly high. It's a heavy spirited piece of nostalgia. John Wayne in his flamboyant element, but James Stewart is too old for the role of an idealistic young Eastern lawyer who was robbed on the way to the West and then goes to work in Shinbone as a dishwasher and he learns about Western life. So here's my thing. <laughs> I'm with Pauline Kael on I think James Stewart's too old. And I think that John and John Wayne is too old. And and I like so to look at this through the the Saris lens. It makes a lot of sense to me, but this didn't grip me. And in part, because, you know, like you said earlier about this idea that this movie is, is shooting holes in the mythology of the West. We've been doing that, 
you know, I feel like that's what, that was the entirety of the fifties. I mean, the, the all of it, like, I just feel like this whole movie came too late. I feel like everything is too late about this film. And it, it's, it is, as, as Sarah says, it is what you say it is. I, I like, I don't think that it's a bad movie. I just think that like, it's been done so many times before and, and better. <laughs> Mm. so i just have a hard time seeing this as like some sort of genius masterwork uh on as it stands alone i mean like funny enough it made me think of the hanging tree from 1959 the delmer daves movie which turns out was written by dorothy m johnson who wrote the man who shot liberty valance which is what the movie was based on which doesn't get brought up much when when everyone calls this john ford's movie I didn't make that connection. I, you know, I knew that her name sounded familiar. I didn't realize she was the same author. That's, I didn't that's either. I mean, like I was just looking at it. I was like, you know, the, it just like my, my initial reaction was just that like, I, I've, I get it. Like, I feel like this is like a very much more straightforward and, and extremely broad version of the same kind of shooting the holes in the, in the dream of the West that we've, that we've seen, you know, like with the hanging tree to me, it, it's a more subtle version of this, of a very similar story, not in plot, but just in this idea that like, you know, the dream of the, of the West is alive and everyone, and yet nothing is beautiful or glossed over. Like there's this, everyone's suffering. There's like the really healthy dose of cynicism that, you know, just bubbles over uh, with each character. And so like, you know, I, I can just go through and just like start listing Westerns, but you know, from the 40s to the 50s, that I feel like just do this, and even John Ford's own films do the same thing. Like, I don't know. I mean, John Ford was somebody who was out there building up the myth of the American West for sure, but he doesn't, it's not like his films were always wholeheartedly patriotic. I mean, maybe there's an argument that could be made that they are, and that you know, that his definition of patriotism is just not black and white, and I think that that's very valid, but I just I had a hard time with this one. And, and I, I also, it, it might also be the fact that I don't like John Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> well, I don't like John Wayne and I don't like James Stewart period. I don't like them. I don't like them in anything. I find them, you know, like I, I, Jimmy Stewart. I like him. I like when he's angry. I thought he, you know, as, as Rance was, was an interesting character and, and as a Yankee loudmouth, I can relate, but like, I didn't find him terribly gripping like i i they always just feel so insincere and for stewart that makes sense by the end of this film once he's an old man once he's a politician you know and and he's just just posturing hollow sort of shell of of who he used to be then then he really rings true but i feel like when they're shown as younger men like need they're totally miscast they're the furthest thing from miscast and and that's that's where you and and pauline are completely wrong even if you don't look at this movie as a john ford film which i know kale is pushing against it's still a john wayne jimmy stewart film and they are bringing their entire history of acting in american films to this like it could not be anybody else and that's the whole subject of this film it's like this is the end of an era this movie is Saris doesn't say this specifically, but he is talking about this as sort of a capper for Ford's career. And he even he brings up Godard at one point. He's talking about the scene in, in the classroom where Rance is standing in front of a portrait of George Washington and Woody Strode is standing in front of a portrait of Abraham Lincoln. And uh, 
Woody Strode is trying to recite the Declaration of Independence. And it's actually there. There are several moments in this movie that are emotional for me. And that was one of them when Woody Strode is is reciting and gets to the part about all men are created equal. And Jimmy Stewart says, that's that's a part of that document that not everybody uh, remembers. And, uh, you know, it's just like well, well he's kind of nasty to him while he's <laughs> <laughs> well he's being a, a, a tough ass teacher but oh know. i thought that was sort of you know symbolic like that he's you know get gets pissed off once once the black man gets to that part oh no i mean he john ford had already made you know sergeant rutledge with woody strode and uh i think there's an acknowledgement in in this film of the civil rights movements and and that john ford is he might not be a, a grandstander, but I think he's sympathetic to that. And that he's, he's not, he's, he's a nostalgic filmmaker and he's always kind of trapped in the past. Do you think Jimmy Stewart is like the good guy of this movie? I think he's a bad guy. No, no, I, I don't see it that way at all. Please. I, how do you see him? <laughs> I see him as America now that, uh, you know, John Wayne represents the America of the past, which, you know, it's easy to to hold these people, these gunslingers up as heroes in this. I also think that you're agreeing with Andrew Saris right now, that he he definitely thinks that John Wayne is the hero of this film. But I disagree. I think. No, Ford... I don't think John Wayne's the hero either. Well, <laughs> I well, I agree with Saris when he talks about the, you know, I, I um showing Valance and Wayne to be uh what, what Saris calls the two sides of the same coin. I think that's 100 percent dead on. I don't yeah. think that that's new to Ford. No, but that's also he's seeing that as this sort of black and white good versus evil of the past. And things are much more complicated now that there's there are too many gray areas now for things to be settled with guns anymore. And he's still like he's acknowledging his own glorification of this past. But he's saying that. But America now is so much more complicated and we need law books. We need you know, education. We need rules. We need civilization. We need all of this stuff. You you were referring to Ford as a Rooseveltian Democrat, which I think is exactly right. And I don't think that Sarah sees him that way. At one point, he calls Ford a not a reactionary, but a conservative. And yes, there's a lot of conservativism to Ford, but I think a lot of that is just everything is sort of steeped in nostalgia for him. So he's always sort of thinking about the past and how that's where we came from. And there's like, he's constantly analyzing where we come from, but he also is interested in social reform. And I don't think Sarah sees that. I think he's sort of got a closed minded view of Ford and that sort of colors Sarah's analysis of these films as Ford films. Like they're in, in the American cinema, Sarah dismisses the Grapes of Wrath. He says, oh, the people held up The Grapes of Wrath as, as this great movie, but this is not one of Ford's great movies. And Sarah's is completely wrong about that. That's a great film. I hate film. that movie. Oh, I, 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 think it's, <laughs> I think it's amazing. And I also think that Ford absolutely believes in what he's saying in that movie. He Ford is a populist. He does believe in the people. Like he's He's got this this conflicted idea about rugged individualism and lawmaking and that he's dealing with in Liberty Valance. But he also is like how many some actually some of the most tedious parts of John Ford movies are where he just sort of stops the action for a while to have a bunch of silly bits of you know, just regular people doing regular things and and dancing and and singing or you know in in this movie the the part that gets more and more tedious for me each time is when 
Peabody, the newspaper editor, is drunk in his office and is just like talking to a shadow on the wall and evoking Horace Greeley. And it just goes on and on and on. Ford loves the losers and the, you know, regular people. You know, and Andy Devine, one of his favorite actors, is in this and is such a like, coward and loser. And Ford clearly loves him. And in the essay, Saris does refer to some of this low comedy that bothers some people. And uh, they sort of get the idea that Saris finds it a little tedious too, but also sort of holds this up as like, but this is what Ford is all about. So I, of course I love it. But he doesn't see how that Ford is is holding up the lose, like the the people in society who need government to help them out. That's the political ideology in this movie that I think Saris is totally missing. And from, you know, from being a part of Ford's personality and from being the sort of the driving force behind this movie, the reason that it exists is that, yes, we do need government to help us out. We're a mess. It's just chaos without government and education. If we want to advance in this world, if we want things to be better for everybody, we, we need government. And that's, I think, the point of this movie, that he is very pro-statehood. And I feel like the the speech that Peabody gives at the end when he nominates Rance for congressperson in this rally for statehood for their territory, Peabody gives this really great speech that clearly Ford is 100% in tune with, really is about what Ford believes. And I wish I actually tried to find this written out online and I didn't take the time to write it down myself, but Peabody is basically talking about people moving to the West and that, you know, these brave people who claim their territory and, the, you know, is the law of the gunmen and, you know, their cheers from everybody in the audience because there is this sort of idea of the, of the lone gunman as, as this heroic figure. But then Peabody goes on to say, but as the trains come, as, you know, as people come West, we need organization. We need some way of making this all work. We need a way to make the American dream work when all of these people are involved. We can't, we can't just be lone individuals anymore. And that's what Ford believes, I think. Like he contrasts the speech with this really pompous speech that John Carradine, representing the other side, the cattlemen who don't want statehood, who want just, you know, all, lawlessness to continue. Like he just makes him look foolish and, and just, you know, makes him like a, a, has a circus performer, like this guy on a horse comes in and like. That felt like a real nod to 30s cowboy movies. Yeah, but it also was just showing how foolish and, and full of hot air the the rugged individualists, the cattlemen, the, the, the ones who don't want law and, and statehood are. Ford is seen as somebody who would be on the cattleman's side. But in that scene towards the end, he definitely is not. Like he thinks that, that these people are fools. So I think Saris gets Ford's ideology wrong. And I think in writing this article, he may not have been aware of the personal differences between Ford and Wayne that you were talking about. I was only vaguely aware of that myself. But I think you're getting this wrong. <laughs> okay. Well, you're because you. It sounds to me though that that you're that you're saying that this is a, a like a patriotic movie as far as America is today, like a pro-government film. It is, yeah. See, I just I I, I don't I can't see that. To me, I see like it, it's this it, it's hollow individualism being replaced by hollow government. I, the question of this film to me is, is are we better off fooling ourselves as individualists? Or are we better off being fooled by the government? Like it's, it's, 
one empty dream being replaced by another. And I think that that's hammered home by the fact that of this question of who killed Valance, you know, like, and, and you sort of realize that everything that Jimmy Stewart is was propped up by the work that had been done by these individualists and he took all the glory and now here we are in this better society that's exactly the same as the society that was before that wasn't any good to begin with <laughs> like they're both equally evil it's just like one american dream being being exchanged for another in in this sort of like continuous circle of hot air see i absolutely see the falseness of Jimmy Stewart being acclaimed as the man who shot Liberty Valance is, you know, the falseness of that is crucial to this movie. But Rance feels his own guilt. Like he doesn't want the nomination because he doesn't want his career to be built on this lie that he was the one who actually shot Liberty Valance. But when it turns out that he can, when uh, Tom Donovan reveals to him that I'm the one who, who actually shot him. So use this lie, use, you know, build upon the work that, that I've done and people like me have done and, and make America a better place. I don't see like Tom has sort of given up after that. He sees there's no place for him in this world anymore and understands that the world that Rance is bringing, that the civilization that he's bringing is what needs to happen. But he, you know, he also sets his house on fire and is, you know, basically he doesn't die for several more decades, but he's still like, you know, he isn't, he isn't anybody because he knows his his time is done. I don't see any negative. Like, where where do you see that the effects of government on Shinbone are is seen as negative in this movie? Just that it's completely hollow. That everyone's everyone's traded in one one fake dream for the next. I mean, like that that it's all built on a lie. You know, that the whole print the myth. I should have written down that's the most famous line in like all of cinema. This is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, you print the legend. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that, I mean, that's print the legend. I mean, I just, how is that not equal to the, what rugged individualism is? So how is one superior? <laughs> because we can't all be rugged individuals. You, you've got women and children and people who can't, you know, sling guns and, and hope that some hero like John Wayne will come along and save them from from evil bandits like Lee Marvin. But we can't all be equal either under capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but that's not in this movie at all. There's also, uh, I have so many points but to I mean, make. That just I... that... But John Ford's not unaware of, I mean, that's the other part of this where I'm like, this could have been cast better. I don't really care about John Wayne you know, being this rugged individualist, I think this would have been a real tale of America if it had been, you know, versus some Native Americans. Like if you had brought in, you know, Woody Strode is there, but barely. And I feel like that's the more interesting story that isn't being told. I don't really care about John Wayne. I, I disagree with you saying that he knows that this is the better, you know, version and he has to sacrifice himself. I think that he's, he's on a complete suicidal spiral i mean like everything that he's been building up jimmy stewart just comes in and, and sweeps in and takes you know including avira miles a haley who i think was a completely horribly underused character and and you know the fact that that john wayne just presumes that you know haley is his i think is really crummy and, and made him a very uh 
unsympathetic character, this idea that like, you know, well, the, oh, this guy just came into town and I made the mistake of saving him and now he's taking everything from me. And, and, and as if I give a crap, like, did, were you emotional when he went and burned his house down? I couldn't have cared less. It just felt grossly self-obsessed. I get emotional over the sacrifice that John Wayne makes. He loves Hallie more than anything and wants what's best for her. And he sees that this new way, this you know, civilization is really what she wants, what she needs, what's best for her, that he doesn't want to keep her, you know, uneducated, unable to read and just keep her in this ignorant place, you know, this day-to-day existence where, you know, nothing's getting better that, uh, you know, you still got criminals like Liberty Valance roaming the streets free because he hasn't challenged anyone to a duel in, uh, in town. So, you know, he, he's never challenged Tom Donovan, the only person who could outdraw him, you know, because that's never happened. Liberty Valance is just allowed to go and, you know, rob and kill and and do whatever he wants because there is no other law. And I, Tom knows that this is not the way things should be, even though this is his way. He knows it's not the right way. He knows it's not what's best for Hallie. And so, yeah, I do get emotional when he sacrifices his own happiness. So then what do you make of Hallie's regret at the end? Because she knows that all the advances that Shinbone has made, her life as a congressman's wife, that all of this is built on the sacrifices that Tom Donovan made for her, for Rance, for the whole country. Like the civilization of the West is built on the sacrifices of these lone gunmen. And that, you know, this lie that rance stoddard is a lawman he's a great you know he wants law and order but he also understands what it's like to be a rugged individual because he he's the one who shot down liberty valance so like he he gets to have it both ways because of the sacrifice that tom donovan has made like the americans want this lie they want their politicians to represent this lone gunman you know the western hero americans want it both ways and that's what rance is able to give them and he feels regret for this this lie that he's lived but he also knows sees all of the great things that have happened from it you know not only in his own life but just the civilizing of the west that happened because of tom donovan's sacrifice i mean it's all there there this is a dense text there's a lot in there like i don't love every second of this film there there's the sort of typical john ford cheesiness that I, you know, will, will sometimes bother me in a lesser movie with less of a, a message or I don't know. I, I, but I think this movie takes a fairly simple premise and creates an enormously complex text out of it. And that's why I think the movie's brilliant. I see what you're saying. I, I guess it just comes back down to this idea of replacing one hollow dream with another. And I think that some of my favorite parts of Westerns is not so much the rugged dream of Americana, but the sort of haunting quality of being at the mercy of nature and of the world. And so I have a hard time seeing the end of this film as being some sort of like rah-rah Americana ending when I, I as a within the the genre itself, I see it as being this sort of also just, you know, empty exchange. Mm. And and also just, you know, knowing John Ford and knowing, uh, I mean, he, he is patriotic clearly, but I don't know this, this to me feels much more cynical. And I don't know if that's the way that he, if he 
if that's from the text, if that's from him, if that's from me, <laughs> I'm having a hard time parsing that because I just, the, the, the problem, the thing that bugs me the most about this film, I think is the, is its straightforwardness. Like it's just too obvious and predictable and, and broad. And I just don't fully engage. I, it, it's, you know, and that, and it's made that way. It's made to be at caricatures, as you're saying, it's, it's, you know, that's, that's the point of the entire thing is to be this broad stroke, perfectly distilled portrait without being you know by by but still being painted so broadly and and, and that in itself i guess is is artful like i i can appreciate that on an intellectual level but on an emotional level on the level of having enjoyed my experience watching this i don't know i just i'm not sold on it whatsoever it is melancholy for sure i mean that's the overriding tone of the whole thing and that's part of why i'm drawn to it and it's absolutely nostalgic and it's about a loss of the, you know, this is remember the way things used to be. There's absolutely an ambivalence to, to that. And I do not think at any point John Ford is saying that things were better then. he's saying me as much as anybody has sort of painted the, the past this time with a, uh, you know, in, in rosy colors. And it's really like, this was an ugly time. I don't think you're, Wrong. I'm like, I'm trying to, I'm wrestling with my own understanding of this because I just feel like this is something, and, and I mean, maybe this is just it, is that John Ford repeats himself quite a lot. <laughs> you know, repetitiveness is also part of John Ford. And so maybe I, what I'm just struggling with is that, you know, I this is this is the same old song and dance we've heard from John Ford every single time. It's the same story that we hear through through the vast majority of Westerns. You know, I it, it, it there's a weird, like, the idea of Westerns and the reality of Westerns and the reality of the actual West and the, in the reality of actual individual, I mean, everything is like, it, it is multifaceted. And so it's just hard to like, I, it's like a struggle against something that a struggle against maybe like the, the populist idea of what a Western is, even though in, in actuality, what has been on the page and on the screen and in history has never, ever matched that. So I don't know. It's like this bizarre shadow boxing of like, you know, who, who are you, who are you even addressing? Because if you're really looking at old Westerns, it, it, that this, this dream that keeps popping back up never, was never there, not even in our own dream fantasy versions of it. <laughs> Oh. And and maybe that's what's frustrating me is just that I I you know I never believed in the dream of the American West. I I appreciate you know I, I you know I you, you we joke about my love for singing cowboys, and I think that's even the best version of you know of of the uh, the dream of the West because that's such a typically and especially the movies and things like that and and you know these the songs these are are largely sort of G rated pursuits you know it's this idea of like you know man and, and nature being like you know out there and having a job to do and getting it done and you know it, it it's not so much that it on its own erasing history so much as it's just telling like one individual story which somehow gets conflated to everybody and then you know that there's certain I, I don't know I this is such a <laughs> well I I mean nobody nobody thinks of that as reality I don't think Ford is addressing anything but the mythology of the West, and he manages to capture the the whole of the the two like main opposing forces in American ideology, like the driving forces that have made us 
what we are, you know, the, the Ringo kid versus Mr. Smith, like these two movies from 1939. This is why it had to be John Wayne. It had to be Jimmy Stewart because you've got these two figures that represent America. And he brings them together to sort of say, Mr. Smith has brought us to where we are today. And it's built on the back of, of Ringo kid from stagecoach. And, you know, just because Ford was the one who directed stagecoach and Capra was the one who directed Mr. Smith goes to Washington. It doesn't mean that Ford is on the side of the Western hero that he thinks that you know, law and government isn't the right way. I mean, it's, and I think, you know, even further than analyzing these American ideologies, it's, he's also sort of talking about the place of filmmaking in Hollywood right now in 1962. This film is also sort of the end of an era of a certain old fashioned way of making films like I feel like that may be part of what you're responding to you're saying this movie seems like it came out too late but that's exactly the point it's he's sort of making this film that's like we don't we don't make them like this anymore we can't make them like this anymore so I'm I'm going to give you a film that sort of puts a cap on all of that you know Sarah's mentions Godard I was starting to make this point before but um you know and sort of you know, brings in, Saris doesn't analyze this idea at all, but there's, you know, we've got these new waves going on. We, we've got this whole, you know, these young Turks who have this brand new way of making films. And, and John Ford, I think, is acknowledging that his way is not the way anymore. And, you know, he, he's sort of making way for this new generation, this new way of making film with this film, that it's a cap to both the, the American dream and the, and the Hollywood studio dream factory. It's both of those things. But that's just not true because every single, I mean, like even a fistful of dollars, I think buys in harder in the American dream of the West than, than John Ford's movies do. Made by Italians. Right. But I, that, that's why I'm just, don't, I, I don't understand the point of this film outside of the context of John Ford and John Wayne. Like, I don't see this as being a great Western. <laughs> it's not, I, I'm it's, not a great Western. Like if you want the duel at high noon that you're supposed to get from the Western, it gives you that, but it's done in like, no one's ever shot a duel like that before where the person who you think pulls the trigger that kills the the bad guy is, is one person, but it's not. You've got, you know, a really like ignoble act from John Wayne, from Tom Donovan that pokes holes in the mythology that the, you know, there's no, this way doesn't work anymore. It's not a Western. It's not meant to be enjoyed as a Western. It's meant to be enjoyed as the story of America. And that's, <laughs> that's all I have to say about that. Uh, I, 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 I feel more confused now than I did before. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you because I just, I, there, there's just, I just don't see what makes this film unique. Watch it again. Saris implores you right at the beginning of his essay Saris to, does implore you to watch to, it, to watch it a time. second time. I don't know if it's worth it. No. It's <laughs> <laughs> Here's a, I mean, maybe just, again, it just comes down to the fact that I don't like James Stewart and I don't like John Wayne. I don't find them compelling. I don't find them representative of anything. Well, then you hate classic American cinema because they are Hollywood up to this point. The fact that they're antiquated now that they don't have any place in 60s Hollywood is exactly the point. And you're one of these young Turks who think that they don't belong anymore. That this is an old way. I don't think way. they ever belonged. I don't think I. I like have totally baffled by the by both of them. 
<laughs> well, there, you there are, are you are of... you are objectively wrong about that. I think I'm objectively wrong about my opinion on this film. I mean, that's what's embarrassing. I, but I really, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't even have anything to say <laughs> for once. I just sort of, I, I feel like you know, uh, reading. I, I, I think Saris is on to something. Uh, you know, I think the more that I was reading about John Ford and John Wayne, the more and, and the more that I sort of considered everything surrounding this film, the better the film became. But I don't think that that makes it a good movie. Hmm. And that doesn't mean it's a bad movie, but uh, which it isn't. I thought it was perfectly fine. I just thought it wasn't telling me anything that I haven't already heard within its own genre and by its own filmmaker and by its own actors. <laughs> <laughs> it just feels like a dime a dozen to me. You've already pinpointed what the problem is. If you come into this movie not liking Wayne and Stewart, then there's no point in watching it because the movie is about the mythology of these two people. So, yeah, there's there's no point. It, you, you should not have watched this movie. <laughs> well, I think that's a crummy attitude to have i don't think anyone should not watch a movie i think everyone should watch movies but um i not doesn't mean that i i came in hating i was i came in expecting to see the best movie i've ever seen in my life <laughs> again I, I literally everyone i know this is a, a five-star film for them a favorite of of all favorites and not only of of westerns but of of you know some of the best of american cinema so that's what i came in expecting i i wasn't didn't come in with a crummy attitude but um yeah, I don't, I just, it, as far as boiling down America, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like it's been done before and, and better. High Noon, I feel like did it better. <laughs> oh. <laughs> as far as undermining the, the myth of Americana, I mean, High Noon, that's all it does. Yeah, that undermines the myth, but it doesn't build anything out of that, of destroying the myth. This movie destroys the myth and builds on it. That's the whole point of the man who shot Liberty Valance, that the lawman is the man who shot Liberty Valance is, is like, okay, we've destroyed the myth and we've built on it. We've printed the legend as fact. And so now we've built this reality that works, this, this beautiful country that America is. We've based this on this, this lie, this legend, this mythology. And that's great. I don't think that's a problem for Ford. I think he finds value in that. There's no way he's saying this without being cynical about it. There's no way to, to, to turn around and say that, that like, this is the same crap that we're living now as we were living then. And so stop being so mean to Westerns. That's what I think this movie's about. This isn't even a Western. I don't, <laughs> I don't consider this one of the greatest Westerns at all. I consider this one of the greatest American films, but it's. Is it as a train? It's not constructed like a Western. It's not. It's set in the Old West and, you know, in the transition from the Old West into the New West. I mean, Once Upon a Time in the West has the same setting, has the same idea, but that is sweaty men with guns, uh, you know, taking law into their own hands. Like, that's backtracking. All that does is add this sort of violent stylization to the old myths. It doesn't advance on um, the old Western myth at all. And, and Man Who Shot Liberty Valance does. Maybe I'll give Ford credit for being this cynical in 62, where everyone else took the rest of the decade to catch up to that level. Well, you say cynical, but I say melancholy. Which is still a late 60s theme. Go, 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 
You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.